I call on God as a witness on my life that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. I do not mean that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand firm in your faith. In fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit, for if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy, because I am confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. For I wrote to you with many tears, out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. Let's pray together, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're in this place for the power of your word, for your faithfulness to us. May you be honored in this time. May your will be done in each of our lives. Through Christ I pray. Amen. Years ago, there was a radio show that used to do a bit called Crooks Are Stupid, where they would tell different accounts of uh, foolish things that, that criminals did, demonstrating they weren't always of the highest intelligence. I thought about that recently when I saw the story of a company in Arizona called Guns for Hire. What they do is they specialize in recreating Western gunfights for movies and television. However, there was a woman in Arizona who apparently got really angry at her husband and wanted to hire somebody to kill him. Apparently, she went through the yellow pages, and guess what she came upon? Guns for hire. She called them. Can I hire you to kill my husband? She got four and a half years in prison. Crooks are not always the most intelligent. Another story that I know shouldn't make me laugh. I will confess that. Shouldn't make you laugh either. But I have a hard time not. Two Michigan crooks entered a, 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 you know, one of these grocery stores and, and wanted, to, wanted to steal from the cash register. The one brandished a gun and said, don't move or I'll shoot. His partner moved. He shot his partner. <laughs> I can't believe you laughed at that either. <laughs> Not always the most intelligent. I tell that just because we all have our moments, don't we? Where we look back and think, that was not the smartest thing to do. When I was a kid, people talked about IQ. If you have intelligence quotients, if you're going to be successful, it's helpful to have a high IQ. In the 90s, people began to research what they called EQ, emotional intelligence quotient. EQ is another way of being smart. It, is, it measures how we get along with people. It measures how we deal with conflict, how we work on teams together. They've met, now made the argument that EQ is probably more important than IQ for ultimate success in life. Reminded me of 
uh, uh, Dale Carnegie years ago pointed out that 85% of a person's job success is the result of interpersonal skills. Only 15% is the result of technical knowledge. Those of you who hire and fire know that people often get hired for competence, but they get fired for incompatibility with others. Call it what you will, learning to play nice in the workplace. Sometimes it's called social-emotional learning. 2,000 years ago, Jesus taught a lot about EQ, didn't he? He would say things like, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's intelligent, emotional intelligence in relationship to God, in relationships with people. Jesus would say, do to others as you would have them do to you. Jesus would say, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Have influence on others. Last week, we began that message where we talked about how we live in a time when Christians really need to have greater influence in the world. For the sake of Christ, for the sake of the general health of our friends and society. Today, as we continue in this series in 2 Corinthians, we really are continuing that message from last week where the Apostle Paul talks about developing EQ and kind of gives an example from his own life. And the church of Corinth is a church that needs to learn EQ. If you know anything about the church of Corinth, read the first letter of 1 Corinthians, you know these are people who did not play well in the sandbox with others. They couldn't get along with anybody. They were divisive. And, and Paul had to, I mean, practically the entire letter is like, stop fighting with each other. But Paul was encouraged by their growth, and I think we can be encouraged by his wisdom as well. How do we develop emotional intelligence? The place to begin is by developing empathy. Empathy has been called the bedrock of relationships. Empathy is the ability to be perceptive of other people's needs and feelings. Now, I will admit from the very beginning um, that, um, that I am not real high on natural empathy. Whenever I take a test, you know those tests that show you your top 50 strengths? Somewhere around 49 for me is empathy. Anybody else low on empathy? You know the problem with those of us who are low on empathy? We really just don't care that we are. No, but here's the point. Whether you are natural empathetic or naturally empathetic or not, we all need to develop greater empathy. In fact, all the other things that we talk about this morning, you might be able to say, hey, that's just another expression of empathy. Well, Paul writes, and you can see his empathy when he writes in chapter 1, verse 23, I call on God as a witness on my life that it was to spare you that I didn't come to Corinth. Paul had said he was going to come back, but the last visit was painful, and they hadn't changed. He writes in chapter 2, verse 1, in fact, I made up my mind about this, you know, after saying that he was, was going to come. He said, I would not come to you on another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? When Paul heard from Titus that the church was still intransigent, unrepentant, he thought, nah. You know, it probably would have made him feel better to vent his spleen toward them, but 
he knew it would have just caused greater pain and no uh, productivity. So Paul says, as God is my witness, I changed my plans to spare you. Empathy. He was aware of their needs and their lack of readiness. How empathetic are you on the scale of zero to ten? What number would you give yourself? How well do you perceive, identify with other people's feelings, needs, hurts? Do you see the hurting people even around you? I had a professor in college, our, our psychology professor, who said we look at, generally we see people and we tend to just assume that they have it all together. We just kind of see people at work or walking around or driving down the road. We think they're happy, they're normal, they're paying the bills, they, they don't have anxiety, they're not carrying around hurts. But he said the reality is if we actually saw people, do you remember the Weebles, those toys that when we were kids, little, little kids? He said, the reality is everybody's a weeble. We're all weebles. Everybody's wobbling. You know, weebles wobble and they don't fall down. We're all wobbling. And sometimes the best we can do is not to fall down and stay down. Empathy. Do you see other people through the eyes of God? Again, zero empathy. Think Think uh, Homer Simpson. I love this Homer Simpson line. Just because I don't care doesn't mean I don't understand. <laughs> it's good. That's zero. Are you there? Or on the other extreme, there's Cicely Saunders, who was a British nurse working toward being a doctor in the 1950s in Great Britain, in London. And she was kind of frustrated because back in those days, doctors were woefully unprepared to deal with people who were dying. They would just tell their family, there's really nothing more than can be done. And they really didn't do a whole lot to help them. But she was a Christian. And as a result, she did see the people through the heart of God. And she thought, there has to be more that can be done. And so, driven by empathy, she spent the next seven years studying people going through the dying process and how to p manage pain she began dreaming about a ministry to cancer patients, but then was really oppressed by this idea, it's impossible, I don't have enough money, how can I ever afford to do some kind of ministry like this? And then she read Psalm 37, verse 5. By the way, how do you develop empathy? empathy? One way is to read Scripture and let God convict you. Psalm 37, verse 5, commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Uh, encouraged by that, in 1961, Cicely Saunders stepped out on faith and started St. Christopher's in London, a hospice. Unlike hospitals, in her hospice, patients could continue to live life. They could garden, they could get their hair done, whatever. She really believed that people need to be treated with dignity because they're made by God. She used to say, you matter because you are you, and you matter to the last moment of your life. 
Now, when people in euthanasia who have a low view of the value of life started arguing for euthanizing the sick, she advocated for their lives because of her ability to manage pain, her ability to improve quality of life, and the value that those people have in God's eyes. In 2005, Cicely Saunders died from breast cancer at the very hospice that she founded. When Cicely Saunders began working as a nurse, doctors viewed dying patients as a medical failure to be dismissed. But because of empathy, she developed a new field of medicine we call palliative care. Because of Christ and her sensitivity to people, she was able to see people as whole persons valued by God. Who knows what God can do through you, the difference he can make if you would just develop his empathy. Where do you rate yourself on the scale the spectrum of empathy. By the way, how do you develop empathy? Prayer helps. Serving helps. Like Cicely Saunders, you have to get close to the hurting. You have to be aware. Um, reading Scripture helps. You know what else helps? When you go through suffering. The next time you suffer, the next time you grieve, rather than just being upset, why, God, did you let me go through this? Would you realize that's God's using that to grow you, to make you more sensitive, to make you more, give you more ability to perceive the needs of others? It's so easy for doctors and nurses to see their patients as cases to be handled. So easy for coaches to see their players as you know, those with ability and those with less ability, those who deserve more playing time, those who don't deserve playing time, rather than seeing them as children with, with hopes and dreams and insecurities. So easy for employees to see their coworkers as competitors, to see their bosses as nincompoops, isn't it? <laughs> Easy to see people today, there's so much stress on the external. Easy to see people primarily according to the color of their skin or their background or whether we perceive them to be privileged or underprivileged. Rather than seeing everybody as made in the image of God, carrying the image of God worthy of equal value. Husbands and wives, isn't it easier, easier just to see each other according to how you irritate each other? rather than as gifts from God to grow us. I love what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 3.15. The prophet says, I came, the people of Israel are in captivity. And he says, I came and I sat among them stunned for seven days. The prophet says, I sat where they sat. Now, of course, nobody had greater empathy than Jesus. The Bible tells us if we follow him, he will develop empathy. And that's the Bible. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. That's empathy. 
not just think about yourself, but think about the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. It is impossible to be proud and empathetic, really empathetic at the same time. But Jesus humbled himself. He left heaven for earth to live among us. He sat where we sat. Think about it. Jesus didn't need to come here to know what we experience. He knows. He made us. He came down and suffered with us so we would know that he experienced it. The Bible tells us that he knew the heart of every person. Hebrews chapter 4 says he was tempted in every way just as we. He reached out and touched lepers because he knew they needed more than physical healing. They needed an emotional touch. Even from the cross when he was dying, he looked at his grieving mother and said to his mother, Mary, he thought about Mary's, even as he's dying on the cross, he thinks about Mary's grief and fear. What's going to happen to me now that my son is gone? And he looks at her and and he sees John, his good friend, and he says, Mary, mother, behold your son. And he says to John, behold your mother. How do you rate an empathy? How can you gain an empathy? Second quality of emotional intelligence is the ability to get along with others by learning to show respect, being respectful. We hear this in 2 Corinthians 1.24 where Paul says, I don't mean that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand firm in your faith. Paul didn't look down on them. He was with them. It would have been easy for Paul to look down on them. It would have been easy to say, hey, I started this church. Hey, I spent 18 months here, which I spent more time here than any other church that I have ever started besides Ephesus. He could have said, I was called by Jesus himself. Anybody here called by Jesus? He could have said, I write scripture. Anybody here else here write scripture? He could have played the apostle card. I'm an apostle of Christ. He could have said, call me Reverend Paul. He could have said, you know, kind of look down on them spiritually, but he didn't. He said things like, I'm the worst of sinners. To the weak, I became weak. He calls himself, several places in the New Testament, he calls himself a fellow worker, like he does here, a fellow worker of people, a soon ergoi. I love that. It's just beautiful in Greek. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. Although Paul says, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you'd become dear to us. Respect. What does respect look like? Romans chapter 12, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud. It's hard to be respectful and arrogant. Instead, associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Have you ever noticed how it's hard to respect people when we're looking down, when we take some strong position and we don't appreciate their situation. I thought about this uh, when we were in Jerusalem recently with a group of people. We went to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem. Now, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher is the place where uh, underneath the roof, is, they have where Jesus died. They also have where Jesus was buried. 
It's an amazing place to be, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Now, it's divided among six different denominations, the Catholic and Coptic and Arminian and, and, and others. Um, each has their own area of the church that is theirs alone. And then they have this common area that they have to share together. Most of the time they do okay Every once in a while, not so much okay, and you'll read some story about the monks fighting with each other, and 11 monks ending up in the hospital as, well, uh, as a result. Um, but t- tour guides always love to tell the story about the keys to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. By the way, keep in mind, <laughs> in this church is the place where Jesus was crucified. The pl- I mean, if there's a holy place, right, that ought to be a place of harmony and respect, it ought to be here. But these people can't get along so much, can't respect each other so much, that in the 12th century, when the Muslims ruled Jerusalem, they were faced with this perplexed decision, who gets to hold the key to the front door? If you, <laughs> they were kind of afraid, if you give it to any one of these six groups, they may not let somebody else in the door. And so the Muslim leader of Jerusalem at that point made a decision. 12th century, he entrusted the key to the church of the Holy Sepulchre to a Muslim family. And ever since then, since the 12th century, every morning the church of the Holy Sepulchre is unlocked by a Muslim and at night is locked by a Muslim because you just have a hard time sometimes showing simple respect and humility. I don't tell you that story just to make you smile and to feel good about yourself because at least we're better than they are, you know, kind of thing. No, but, but it's, it, it really kind of reveals the struggle that we all have to live in harmony. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. You know what showing respect means is is shown in simple ways. You see, simple ways of humility. I read recently about a boss who has a special test when he hires people. He says that he always takes them down to the office uh, kitchen and they'll get coffee and they'll take their coffee back to the office, go through all the interview, and then at the interview, he pays attention to what the person being interviewed does with his coffee cup. Does he show respect to others by taking responsibility for his own cup or her own cup and what do I need to do with this? Or are they oblivious? Are they entitled to be served by others? And so the the person doesn't take responsibility for their own cup. See, you can interview somebody and get all the right answers, but just watching how they conduct themselves will tell you a lot about how well they will work with others, how well they respect others in the small things. Showing respect means letting little things go. Proverbs 19 verse 11 says, a person's insight gives him patience and his virtue is to, and, and, and his virtue is to overlook an offense. How often do we quit respecting each other, showing respect because we've been offended by somebody, we've been hurt by somebody, and so we feel like we don't have to show them uh, respect anymore. You know, there's a reading of the will, and you don't get what you thought you were going to get, and you get, and so you just pull away from your family. You know, you feel like you're taken advantage of, or you feel like you've served and you've been overlooked, and 
you get your nose out of joint. Um, there's a new expression people have. We live in a time where people sometimes think it's virtuous to be really hypersensitive about offenses. And the more sensitive you are to little offenses, the more mature you must be. Um, microaggressions can be this way. Somebody, here are phrases that you shouldn't use. Where are you from? America is a melting pot. America is a land of opportunities. Those are microaggressions that we shouldn't say anymore, we're told, because they may hurt somebody's feelings. Last week, the AP said we should stop using the article the because that may trigger people as well. Now, later on, they, retract, they apologize for saying such a thing because it's so absurd. You know what the Bible says about how we should respond to little things? Get over it. That's what it says. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. A person's insight gives him patience, and his virtue is to overlook an offense. How, how much conflict is there in the world today? Because everybody gets so offended about everything. Now, this is where, this is not simple. This is where empathy comes in. I'm not saying we shouldn't be empathetic toward hurts for others. We need to be sensitive toward hurts for others, but we need to overlook offenses toward us. You see, that's what I'm saying. Somebody said maturity is moving from a thin skin and a hard heart to a thick skin and a soft heart. Boy, the world needs more people like that today. Showing respect. Now, there's more that I could say about that that I'll probably say in a devotion this week. Um, let me just say, it, it all, this is a, it, it, it comes down to, as, as the Bible says in Philippians, don't think more highly of yourself than I, think of the interests of others above yourselves. That's what shows respect. I love the story I've told before of the Duke of Wellington, old story, one day he was traveling in the rural area, and it was a Sunday, and he decided to attend a small church and small church service. And he enters with his entourage that's so impressive and takes his seat, and the time comes for communion. And in the tradition there was at communion, you would stand up and walk down the aisle and kneel before the priest, and the priest would give you your communion. Well, it's time for the communion as the duke stands and moves forward and begins to kneel down, who should stand up, oblivious to what's going on apparently, than somebody that everybody else recognizes as kind of the town drunk, disheveled, unimpressive. He walks forward, sort of oblivious, begins to kneel down beside the Duke of Wellington. And one of the entourage comes up to him and whispers in his ear, you can't stay here. Don't you know who that is? That's the Duke of Wellington. Embarrassed, he begins to stand up. And according to the story, the Duke of Wellington took his hand, put it on his shoulder, put him back down on his knees, and he said, there are no dukes here. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. When will we respect each other? When we quit feeling like we're the Duke.
that other people need to show more respect to. The Apostle Paul could have said, I'm Duke Paul, but he didn't. Now, if you decide to call me Duke Brett, I won't mind too much, but <laughs> no, that's not good. Finally, uh, evidence of emotional intelligence is be showing, expressing love regularly. Paul does that a couple of ways. He does it by showing vulnerability. I'll talk about that another time. But he does that really well by expressing encouragement clearly. Notice verse 3. He says, I'm confident, <laughs> I'm sorry, this makes me laugh. I'm confident about all of you because that my joy will be yours also. Verse 4, for I wrote to you with many tears and out of extremely, an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. That makes me laugh. Because if there's a group of people that's hard to love, it's the people in Corinth. These people have been a pain in the neck to Paul. And yet, he goes out of his way to say, hey, I'm so confident in you. I want you to know, despite all the conflict, despite all the controversies that we've had, uh, my love for you could not be greater. Could you imagine how that must have encouraged those people? You know, they probably thought Paul thinks we're some, you know, kind of idiots, but he, he really believes in us. He really, he really loves us. Emotionally intelligent people are aware of the power of encouraging words. A Harvard research study, and there have been lots of studies that have revealed basically the same thing, revealed that high, highly um, effective teams, highly performing teams, have a ratio of encouragement to to correction, six to one. Six encouraging words to one negative. Average teams, medium-performing teams, the ratio is two to one. Two encouragements to one correction, but it's still twice as much encouragement as correction. Underperforming teams, lower-performing teams, average one encouragement to three negatives. See the power of an encouraging word? Are you convicted by that? I am. I just think, oh, what about with my kids? What's the percentage? You know, with the people I work with, what's the percentage? Now, the Bible says we need both. Second Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy and to, to us by extension, Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct rebuke and encourage with great faithfulness and careful um, devotion. The, he, he, Paul points out we need correction and rebuking as well as encouragement. The power of encouragement, though, is that while correcting and rebuking may get somebody back on track, encouragement is so necessary and empowering for keeping people on the right path. I tell you, it makes such a difference in my life when I'm working with somebody that I know believes in me. You ever work with somebody, you ever live with somebody that does, who doesn't believe in you and you feel like you're always afraid of failure? Many of you know I've admired Bob Russell since I was a kid. Um, grew up in our home church, and so I was able to watch his church in Louisville, Kentucky grow from 300 to 1,000, 22,000 by the time he retired. 
um, I asked him when I was in high school if when I was in college I could do an internship with him, and he said yes. I've told him since then that there have been very um, few exp- things in life that have had more influence on my ministry and my vision and, and our practices than my time there interning with Southeast. After my internship, Bob wrote a letter to my mom. He grew up with my mom. And, um, and that, a letter of encouragement, you know, saying, you know, Diane, I want you to let you know the terrific job that Brett did and, and some other stuff. And, and, um, and it was so important. You know how encouraging that was? My mom put it in a folder to save. And then a couple of years ago, she gave it to me. Um, you know how I felt when I read that the first time? You ever see Barney Fife after he arrests somebody? You know, kind of like, woohoo, that's pretty cool, kind of thing. In the years since then, Bob has continued to send me encouraging notes. And again, I can't tell you how much. <laughs> they, he probably thinks they're not a big deal. He, they take him three seconds to do. But they've been like gold. They've been perfect timing for me. Here's the question. Who do you have in your life? that a word of encouragement from you would make so much difference today. may not seem like a big deal to you, but it's a treasured gift for them. Over 100 years after Lincoln's assassination, the Library of Congress revealed the contents that were in his coat that night. Several interesting things. He carried eyeglasses, a couple of eyeglasses, a pocket knife, a gold watch, a handkerchief, a cufflink. What I found most interesting is in his wallet, he carried with him several articles, newspaper articles that were folded, but they were articles praising him for the work that he's doing. Can you imagine? It's not hard for me to imagine. In the middle of a bloody civil war, Lincoln is feeling exhausted. He's feeling defeated. He's feeling like a failure. He's wondering how things are going to work out. And late one night in the White House, he, there's a fire in the fireplace, and he goes and he sits beside it, and he pulls out a pair of glasses, and he puts them on, and he begins to unfold these articles. One of them said what a courageous thing that he did in signing the Emancipation Proclamation. Another speculated that he might go down in history is one of the finest presidents in American history. Can't you imagine Lincoln soul-weary reading those encouraging articles and finding strength? I hope that reminds you that everybody needs encouragement. If the president of the United States needs encouragement, there's not a person in your life who can't use it from you. Think of how the Corinthian people must have felt when they heard, when they read Paul's words, I always had confidence in you. I want you to know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, the challenge for us as we go today is to encourage people who are easily overlooked. The church in Corinth is an easy church not to encourage. Church in Jerusalem, easy to encourage. Church in Antioch, easy to encourage. Church in Corinth, not so much. Who are the Church of Corinth people in your life? The people who are easy for you to overlook 
and not even to think to encourage. What about the people that hold the babies in the nursery? What about the people that are here every Sunday morning setting up and tearing down at 5.30 in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning? What about the people that are here at 1 o'clock? Um, I so appreciate you all coming to third service because after the third service, what do we do? We pick up everything. And, and, and there are a bunch of you that hang around for a long time until every chair is picked up and every carpet piece is put away and we're putting away stuff. Um, thank you for that. Would you thank the people around you who, who do that week after week? But here's what happens. About one o'clock, there are about four people left. And there's still a bag of garbage that needs to be taken out, still something that needs to be put away. And there are three or four people who are still around doing the last work until it's completed. So easy to overlook. Will you thank them? You know, one way to thank those people is to, is to volunteer. When was the last time you thanked somebody for serving during the holidays? There's no more time that is, there's no time that's more difficult to get volunteers than Christmas. Who wants to serve in the, in the, in the, in the worship band six services on Christmas Eve and Christmas morning? No, everybody wants to be with family. I understand. Everybody has plans. Nobody wants to be here setting up and during the service and tearing down because it's Christmas. It's Christmas Eve. We have all this stuff to do. It's so hard. Well, would you say thank you to the people that serve at Easter and Christmas? It's one of the reasons why churches shut down around Christmas time. Because it's just so hard to get volunteers. Thank those people that are easy to overlook. What about the frontline people that do their best every week to say th- to make your first impression of God a good one? What about that person that you've never seen before on Sunday morning? They're here for the first time. And it's really tempting just to walk past because you've you're afraid to talk to them rather than saying, I've not met you before. So glad you're here. What about the single person that comes alone every week? What about the single mom with three kids who comes week after week because she wants her children to grow up knowing God? It would be so much easier to stay home and just watch. Would you encourage those people and what about the person that got drunk last night, got high last night, and yet they're here this morning? They feel shamed, but they also know they need the Lord. I am so encouraged that you are here. So many people, it's easy not to notice, easy not to appreciate. Will you offer a kind word, send a quick note, invite to get coffee, invite to your small group, What if right now, before you leave these doors today, you tell somebody, I'm so glad you came. Thanks for serving. I appreciate you. How can I help? Jesus sets the example for encouraging the overlooked, of course. There was a woman caught in adultery. Some wanted to stone her. Jesus said, go and sin no more. He was saying to her, I'm confident you can do it. There was one who was ostracized. Nobody wanted to be around this woman. That's why she was at the well alone. Jesus sat down and he listened to her. Peter was a bonehead, so impetuous. Jesus says, you're going to be a rock. Nobody wanted to lead the disciples. Jesus says, I'm going to change the world through you. Go and make disciples of all nations and I will be with you 
always. We're going to do it together. Old Limerick says, What care I for the sweet white rose I hold in my dead cold hand? What care I for the sweetest words I cannot understand? What it means is, what good is your encouragement when the person you want to encourage is dead? When the opportunity to encourage is lost? There are people around us all the time who need encouragement. And you have the power to do that. Do it now. Find the time. Find the opportunity. And take the action. Now, I've got to be very honest with you. This is a hard sermon for me to write, a, a very guilty sermon for me to write because I know I don't measure up very well. I know I have a long way to go. I know, you know, some of you are probably listening to this, you know, thing, you know, physician, heal thyself. But I want to tell you where my hope is. My hope is in Jesus Christ in His power and His presence. I'm disappointed that I'm not further along than I am at age 57. But if I focused on trying to change my emotional intelligence myself, I would feel defeated. I don't know that I could do it. But my focus is that Jesus has said, I am the good shepherd. And Jesus has said, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. And so my focus isn't, God, make me more emotionally intelligent. My focus is... Jesus, help me to hear your voice at all times so that I will love people the way that you would have me to love them. And I can do that. He's my hope. Is Jesus your hope? If not, receive him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Paul, for the words of Scripture, for the power of your Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Lord, I ask that you would do your work right now in each of our lives. We live in a world in desperate need of the love of Christ. We live in a world that you want to love through us. And so now we surrender afresh to you that this week we might let you love the world, other people through us more effectively than last week. Through Christ I pray. Amen.